Thank you. You may be seated. It is a joy to be back. As Brad said, my name is Matt Morgan, and I'm just delighted to, to be able to be back after a little sabbatical with you for the next three weeks. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and start turning to Daniel chapter 9. What I, as I was praying through, all right, Lord, what would you have me do when I come back in July? Uh, I don't know about for you, but as a guy working in agriculture, spring is a crazy busy time. Uh, oftentimes, I, I felt like I was chasing sunshine all over the country, uh, just constantly moving. And as summer has kind of settled in, uh, the Lord really has been working in my heart about my own prayer life. And so as I was praying through, Lord, what would you have me do over the course of these three weeks? Uh, I want to, to invite you to join me as we look at three different examples, three different testimonies of prayer. Because I believe God desires us as followers of Christ who have been given bold, confident access to the throne of grace uh, to be a people who find ourselves at that throne regularly and with great grace and confidence. Now, uh, oftentimes I, I picture life uh, like that old school car wash. If, if you've ever remembered this, I can remember as a kid, my dad pulling up, he would shift the car into neutral and, and of course, there would be this mad dash where the spray's starting and he's trying to make sure the antenna's down because back in those days, you know, you couldn't, there wasn't an electric antenna. Well, nowadays, there aren't even antennas at all. I mean, they're just a little nub, right? But, I mean, he used to whew, throw that window down, try and reach out there, push the old antenna down, and then, boom, next thing you know, you'd kind of feel that little jolt that said, all right, she's, she's moving. And then, whew, as a kid, this was like deep sea adventure, you know, you foam all over the windows, and next thing you know, those, those octopus arms, kapoosh, kapoosh, you know, start slapping on the, on the car, and you're like, oh, wow, is this machine able to handle this, this experience, you know? And then a little while later, there's those brushes, you know, <laughs> yeah, and, and it sounds like the walls are going to cave in on the car. And me and my brothers, we would just sit in the back seat, you know, mystified by this whole thing. And then you hit the blowers, right? You remember this part? <sighs> And it blows the thing off, and you come out, and you're like, wow, this thing's it's sparkling clean. You know, all our finger signatures on the car are gone, and we're just going to have to wait a little while and do it again, Dad. Um, you, you remember that? You guys are chuckling, I'm sure. Uh, some of the younger kids probably don't, don't have the joy of this experience. So parents, grandparents, if you can find one, take your kids through it. it it's an experience. But all joking aside... Isn't life kind of like that car wash? You get up in the morning. I mean, the, the key to the whole thing is you got to get aligned. You, you pull the car in, got to kind of, I remember as a teenager, it was a little, little nerve-wracking to make sure I got the tires lined up with the tracks. But once you are lined up, boy, she sucks you through, and you don't have to think about it. Does your day feel like that sometimes? You wake up in the morning, you, you try and spend some time in God's Word, you try and spend some time in prayer, and even in the midst of your time with the Lord, your mind is just sucked into the vortex of your day. Maybe it's a big meeting. Maybe it's events and circumstances happening in your home, in your family life. Whatever the case may be, we just kind of get sucked through our day, chewed up, slapped around, and spit out. And we kind of look back and think, I, I think it went, went all right today. It looks like some progress was made here. And we get up the next day and wash, rinse, repeat, right? Is that really the, the picture that God has for us as a people of faith? The Bible in 
Isaiah chapter 64 describes it this way. And I I think this is a a little bit different language, but it's a similar phenomenon. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, verses 6 and 7. He says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So, So here's the picture, right? The car's gotten dirty. We're not even entirely sure how. It's It's in need of a bath. And so in the morning, we get up and try to start this thing afresh. He says, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Here we go. You know, neutral, and and we get kicked into the washing machine. Now listen to verse 7. There's no one who calls upon your name, speaking of God, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you've hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Do you see the picture? It's there. It's the picture of a people in spiritual neutral. They see that they're unclean. They're, they see the wickedness of their rebellion. But they don't rouse themselves, as it says, to take hold of God, to call upon His name. The early church father, John Chrysostom, he's writing in the 4th century, said this about prayer. He said, Prayer is an all-efficient panoply, a treasure undiminished, a mind which is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by the clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root, the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. The potency of prayer hath subdued the strength of fire. It hath bridled the rage of lions, hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the gates of heaven, assuaged diseases, repelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. Do you hear a depiction of almost the entire Old Testament in that picture? And yet Chrysostom, rightly I believe, ascribes to prayer and the power of God unleashed through his people as the main contributing element to all of those things. Now certainly one of those things here, the rage of lions, is front and center in our story this morning, isn't it? Because if there's one thing, even the young people in the audience this morning, what you know about Daniel is what? Where did Daniel go? Come on, a little louder. The lion's den, right? You know the story of Daniel and the lion's den. So who better to go to, who better in God's kindness to be able to step into his personal prayer closet? And have you ever wondered, kids, parents, what was Daniel praying three times a day at the cost of going into the lion's den? What was his plea to God at that time? Oh, we don't have to guess. It's right here in Daniel chapter 9. Would you stand with me? Let's read Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19 together. And out of honor for God, please, if you're able, stand with me and let's read these verses and really this prayer from Daniel together. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I... Daniel perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. 
Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured upon us because we have sinned against him. He's confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done in Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Great and awesome God, holy, holy, holy is your name. Father, you existed before the foundation of the world in absolute perfection, perfection of essence, perfection of relationship with yourself. You created this world, a world in which you rule righteously. And yet, Lord, we are blind, blind rebels constantly fighting against your plan, your purposes in this world. Oh, Lord, give us eyes to see what you are doing 
that we might call out upon a God who is rich in mercy and find your grace and strength that we might live to the glory of your name. Father, uh, give us attention to your word now as we look at it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Daniel certainly is a very common figure. And so I, I want this morning at the start of this message to, to think through just what it was like for Daniel. We might think of Daniel in terms of, uh, of the originator of the Whole30 diet. If you've, if you've ever done the Whole30 diet, you know it's pretty much vegetables and, and fruit. And so Daniel, in defiance of the king's uh, regimen, was one who said, nope, no meat, none of the king's finest fare. I want only water and, and fruits and vegetables. Or maybe it's uh, the old kid's song, Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Maybe that's in your mind's eye how you think of Daniel. But, but picture this. Daniel's story, Daniel's life begins as a teenage boy with amazing promise. Here's one of the brightest in Israel. National Honor Society. Accolades from all his peers. Head and shoulders standing out from the crowd. He's got big dreams. Big plans. His whole life lays before him as perhaps a future leader in Israel. And suddenly, these, these dreams, these hopes, these ideas are brought crashing to a halt. The Chaldeans come. They sack Jerusalem, break down her walls, and they carry away the best and brightest. They chain them up, drag them back to Babylon, and begin a systematic brainwashing, a, a taking of these men and trying to beat into their minds what it means to be a leader in Babylon. To believe the gods of Babylon. To, to live as the people of Babylon live. And this is Daniel's new reality. Daniel's new world. What will he do? Will he believe in the true and living God? A true and living God that seems to be turning his face away from his people. For, for the city that was to, to bear his name was to be a light in the midst of darkness is now in, in shambles. It's a light, but it's, it's fire. <laughs> Not the people. And he's now in, in this weird political satire where he's forced to, to be something that he's not. And being brainwashed and conditioned. You see, if we can use the analogy of a, of a ship... The, the tide and the wind is so strong. It, it's gale force winds against the sails. And Daniel has to row against the storm. He has to fight against these cultural currents that seek to drag him under. It's a lot to ask of a young man. And yet we see throughout these first six chapters of Daniel, time and time again, Daniel believes in God and God shows up. We saw it with the food and his dietary choices. Daniel's plea to this organizer, the one charged with executing the king's command and providing these rations, he says, just watch and see if we aren't healthier and stronger. And God shows up, and they are. And so they're allowed that freedom. Later on, God would speak these visions to Daniel so that he could come and provide relief and interpretation to the king. And so, similar to Joseph before him, Daniel rises 
to be one of the top leaders in all of Babylon. A leader, though, that didn't compromise to get there. So as we turn here to Daniel chapter 9, we see a man who, in Daniel chapter 6, is praying three times a day. He's earnestly seeking the Lord to work, to bring about change. Change in his people, but change in in restoring the city that once was a, a bastion of God's glory. What was it that Daniel prayed as he was thrown into the lion's den? We see it here in Daniel chapter 9. And I believe here in Daniel chapter 9, we we find four lessons that, that we can learn from a man of prayer. And these lessons, they relate to this this earnest prayer. What does it look like to pray with great earnestness? The first mark that we can see here in Daniel chapter 9 of earnest prayer is really the cause of this earnest prayer. What was it that sparked this amazing prayer life, a prayer life that dares to, to stand in the face of a lion's den? What was it? Well, the cause here is, is very clear. It's, it's the sobering judgment of a holy God. You see, we're familiar with the story of Daniel 6 and the lion's den, but many of us may not be familiar with the story of Daniel 5. Do you recall what happens in Daniel chapter 5? You see, in Daniel chapter 5, there's a transition from Nebuchadnezzar, kind of the famous ruler of Babylon, the one that orchestrates uh, the hauling off into exile. And after his time is done, his son takes power. And his son, in, in kind of classic, celebratory fashion, throws a great feast. And it's kind of a taunting feast because they, they bring out articles from all the temples that they've conquered. It's kind of a flaunting of our God's greater than your God. And this party, it's going on, it's ruckus, it's loud, it's great, until, until this hand shows up over on the wall and it, and it writes, Mene, Mene, Tekelu, Farsin on the wall. Now you don't have a clue what that means, they didn't either. And so, who is called in to interpret the sign on the wall? Daniel. And Daniel comes in and Daniel says, ah yeah, here's what it means. Mene, your kingdom is about to end. Tekel, You've been weighed on God's scales and found deficient. You want to talk about scary. Scary. You've been placed on the scales of God's judgment and found lacking. Whoa. And because Mene Mene is twice, this is going to happen really fast. Guess what? That was the last day for Belshazzar on the throne. Bam! Dead and the Persians rule that very night. You want to see a true and living God step down, deal with horrific sin and rebellion, a defiant shaking of the fists in his face? Daniel saw it. He saw it firsthand. And Daniel, you see, Daniel in seeing that, where does he go? What does he do when he sees the sovereign, awesome power of God unleashed in his world? He's a man of the book. Look at verse 2. Daniel, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. So this is at the very beginning of this transition, a, a transition that clearly has the sovereign marks of God upon it. And it says, in, in this first year, Daniel, uh, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years 
according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. This, this book, it's not just some secular literature, some historical writing. It's the prophet Jeremiah. Daniel's in the scriptures. As he sees God step down and powerfully and visibly manifest his holy character, Daniel's in the book. Daniel's in the scriptures. And he comes across, if, if you're familiar with Jeremiah the prophet, there are three passages that specifically address what's happening in Israel. There's Jeremiah 25, verses 11 to 14. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 16. And then Jeremiah 30, verses 18 and 19. And isn't it interesting that in Jeremiah's prophecy, if you understand the flow of that book, what's coming right on the heels of these chapters? In Jeremiah 31, it's the new covenant promise where God tells this broken people Israel, I'm going to take this law, a law I gave to you on tablets of stone, and I'm going to write it, I'm going to write it in your heart. I'm going to transform you from the inside out. It's an amazing promise, isn't it? And we see in Acts chapter 2 in the church age, this is fulfilled. God does this work through his Holy Spirit. Now we're getting the cart ahead of the horse. Back to Jeremiah 25 and 29. I want you to see one thing. First, in Jeremiah 25, I want you to see that this is not obscure. This isn't like some prophecies where you kind of have to use your imagination to figure out what's going on. Look at Jeremiah 25 verse 11. This whole land, this is the prophet speaking to Israel, they're in rebellion, they're rejecting the word of the Lord through his prophets. He says, the whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. That's like crystal clear. Parents, take note. It's always really good when your children are acting up, you lay out for them, here are the consequences that are going to happen if you continue to defy and rebel. That's exactly what God has been doing. He did it back in Deuteronomy, chapters 28 through 30, right before the people come into the land. He, he tells them, this is what will happen if you persist in rebellion. And now through Jeremiah, the last of the prophets before captivity, God says, 70 years, 70 years you will go and serve the king of Babylon. Now Jeremiah 29. And I want to give you the verses you're not familiar with, and then I'm going to tie them to one you're very familiar with. Because I want you to see the connection between the sovereign activity of God in our world that's so very real and yet so often missed and God's promised plan. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, so now he's, he's expounding, right? He's already stated that this is going to be a 70-year period. Now he's going to expound upon it. When those 70 years have been completed, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. What's this place? It's Jerusalem. Now here's the part you're familiar with. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. You know those verses, don't you? Do you see the context here? It's the suffering and the, the life of Daniel that's caught right smack in the center, in the apex of God's redemptive plan, of his chastening, his restoring work for his people Israel. But let's not move on without verse 12. What's to be the response to God's plan for restoration? Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. 
Where is Daniel finding the prescription for how to handle and how to navigate life as an exile? Life outside of the promised blessing and favor of God. It's the Word of God, isn't it? You see, the sovereign action of God, touch, taste, feel, in human history, in real experience, leads Daniel to the Word of God, that through the Word of God, now Daniel finds the recipe to march and live in the midst of really difficult, turbulent times. And it's the judgment and mercy of God that is exalted, both in these prophecies that Daniel studies, but also in the world that Daniel is living in. Because in God judging the Babylonian king, what's he doing? He's fulfilling Jeremiah's prophecy. He's fulfilling God's judgment that says it's going to be 70 years, no more, no less. And God brings it about in very clear fashion. And so for for Daniel, he's encouraged. He sees mercy for Israel that God is, is perhaps beginning to do this turning work where he's going to rebuild and restore what sin has destroyed in God's people and in the city, Jerusalem, that bears his name. Where else do we see the judgment and mercy of God so vividly and clearly displayed? Is it not at the cross of Jesus Christ where our sin and the full weight of it, the wrath that we deserve for our rebellion, was poured and exhausted upon him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we, here's the amazing mercy, we might become the righteousness of God in him by faith. God delights to draw his people into communion and connection with his name through the sobering display of who he is, and by faith our amazing connection to the word of God and the promises of God for us. Number two, that's the the cause for earnest prayer. It's this awesome God doing real things in our world connected to his word where he's promised these things. And secondly, the, the conscience of earnest prayer. Notice throughout this prayer, the, the dominant emphasis in terms of time and number of verses is not on what Daniel wants. You see, in light of who God is and this display that's happened in Daniel 5, Daniel sees the brokenness of his world and he looks in and says, oh God, we have sinned. You see, this confrontation with a, a holy God, it brings about the conviction of sin. And the call for for a repentant heart before this holy God. Look at verse 3 of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel says, I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. Now this is Daniel. Like if anyone could come to God with with righteous uh, feeling of I earned this, I've deserved this, it'd be Daniel, wouldn't it? I mean, he stood up to the test. And yet Daniel comes broken. Daniel comes saying, I plead with you for mercy with with fasting, sackcloth, and and ashes. Verse 4, I prayed and and I made confession. He says in verse 5, we've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly and rebelled. Like there's no wiggling, no kind of nuancing the language here. Daniel's just flat out, we have done wrong, God. You told us how to relate to you. You told us how to enjoy you. 
And we have rebelled. All throughout, this theme comes up over and over again. Look at the end of this section in verses 13 and 14. This isn't anything new. Verse 13, as it's written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. You might just jot down Deuteronomy 28 through 30. Way, way back, before they ever set foot in the land, God had had established for them what would happen if they took lightly what it meant to live in relationship with Him. And here we see that that this repentant heart recognizes the long-standing rebellion And notice, even as God escalates the discipline, as God is seeking to draw the hearts of his people back in repentance, what's the one thing they're not doing? Do you see it at the end of verse 13? Yet you have not, we have not entreated. (laughs) Do you see that? We have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities. They still haven't repented. Daniel, he's affirming this he's acknowledging this even though verse 15 god you you led us out of egypt we should remember the exodus if there was a defining moment like the cross for the christian today it was god's deliverance from egypt that showed how precious this people was to him and he said in spite of this you made a name for yourself as at this day but we have sinned we have done wickedly In the New Testament, we find in 1 John a a great reminder of where we can go when confronted with the reality and the depths of our sin. You see, the brokenness in our world out here ought to, to lead us here, to see the brokenness in our own hearts. And 1 John says in verse 8, chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And here's the glorious truth. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he goes on just another verse later in 1 John chapter 2, My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Church, we have an advocate. We have one who bore the full wrath so that you and I would never experience it. And yet, more often than not, when confronted with difficulty, with the pain, the suffering, the complexity of our world, we just get sucked through. And we don't stop. And we don't cry out to the God who is rich in mercy through this advocate that he's provided and say, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for we have sinned that's where god led daniel daniel saw and it's repeated twice here in verse 7 and verse 9 to you O lord is righteousness to you O lord is mercy and forgiveness but to us open shame how do we deal with the open shame of our sin notice where daniel goes the third lesson what's the consuming focus of this prayer. As as Daniel comes to grips with the reality of sin, it leads him to the covenant character of God. Notice time and time again, this is a God in verse 4 who keeps covenant and hesed, steadfast, loyal love. It's an, an echo of Exodus 34. 
And so this, this great and, and awesome God, he's a God who is filled with mercy. The, the word throughout this passage is, is mercy and forgiveness. Verse 9, to our Lord belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. You see, the human heart, it's like a magnet. And, and when we see the holiness of God, it, it shows us how far separated from him we are by sin. And yet the magnet of the human heart, it either attracts us and draws us toward God because of who he is, or it repels us from God. And we seek to do it our own way, to, to live in our own strength. And here in Daniel, we see a, a man fully aware of the ravages of sin and yet fully aware of a God who is rich, rich in mercy. And so I want you to see this, this cycle. I think this is so helpful because rather than give you a how-to of faith, I want you to think about the who of faith. Same three letters, just arranged differently. But notice this, who God is. Daniel chapter 5, it's crystal clear who God is. And in light of who God is, and in light of the Word of God that, that further expounds and explains who God is, now Daniel is drawn into his own personal rebellion against the sovereign ruler of the universe. And yet, as he thinks about this rebellion, he doesn't think about it in a pity party way, but rather his eyes are lifted to the covenant character of God, this God who's made great and precious promises and has ensured they will come to pass. And as Daniel, here throughout this prayer, is meditating on the character of God, he's reminded in the midst of his sin of this merciful and awesome God. Notice his mind begins to, to run to the glory of God displayed. And he says, God, your, your promises are always attached to your people. Would you do a work in restoring your people? You see, he recognizes the righteousness of God four times. It's here. To you belongs righteousness, God. And as a people, you had set us apart to, to display in some broken, shallow way who you are to a lost and broken world. Sound familiar? But they'd failed. So Daniel says, Lord, I want you to restore for your name's sake. And this leads us to the fourth and final lesson the great concern of, of Daniel's prayer. Do you notice that it's really only three verses and, and of those three verses, really, it's down to almost a verse where Daniel actually asks God for anything? Do, do you see that distribution throughout this prayer? It's there. And so notice in verse 18, he finally gets around to, to what he's asking. He, he says in verse 17, please listen to the prayer of your servant, to his pleas for mercy, and here's the key. And for your own sake. <laughs> Do you see that? For your own sake, Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary. Verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear uh, and, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. You see, what's at stake is, is the glory of God. It's our rightful image-bearing role to, to manifest, to show and display who God is. And Daniel says in verse 19, here's his appeal. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. Pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God. Because your city and your people are called by your name. Do you see the, 
the soul-consuming passion in Daniel's plea. It's a call for God to be glorified in the restoration of his people. That's what he longed for. Can I ask you, is that what you long for in the body of Christ? The body of Christ here at First Baptist? The body of Christ in Peoria? Greater Peoria area? Pekin? The United States? And the world? Are you burdened and broken by the failure of Christ's church because of sin, idolatry, and rebellion to display rightly who God is? If that doesn't rouse you to want to grab hold of who God is, I don't know what will. And here we see in this this man of God, a man who would face lions to pray. He's praying for the glory of God to be displayed. Think of the Psalms. Close with a couple of, of these psalms, and then I want to I tie the end of this story together. You're familiar with Psalm 23, David's great psalm about the Lord being our shepherd. In verse 3, he says, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. <laughs> psalm 25. For your name's sake, O Lord, do what? Pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalm 79, verses 9 and 10. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. The history of Israel is a history of God doing amazing, marvelous, miraculous things for his name's sake. And yet, in his infinite wisdom, he chooses, he chooses these broken pots to be instruments of his mercy, to display who he is to a lost and broken world. Earnest prayer is an appeal to God's mercy. It's an appeal to God's mercy for the restoration of his people so that his name might be exalted among the nations. Is that how you pray? As we think about the problems in our nation, as we think about the problems in our state, as we think about the problems in our city and in our church, is it the glory of God that has our attention? Do we believe he's so real that he comes and he works in real people all around us? Oh, may God open our eyes. He's at work, church. He is at work. He's at work in the unbelievers you rub shoulders with every day. He's at work in your neighborhoods. He's at work in our city. The problem is we're blind. We just keep going through the cycle, getting in the car wash, and get sucked in every day. Oh, may we learn from Daniel and see this God who is infinitely at work in our lives. And as we see him at work, may we see our own sin and brokenness and cry out to a God who is rich in mercy. As we see his mercy, may it draw us into his covenant promises to believe that he will fulfill all that he's promised in Christ. What happens here? How, how will the glory of God be shown through Daniel's prayer? 
We don't have to look far. It's here at the end of Daniel chapter 9. What happens? Gabriel, this angel, he comes. And again, he's going to explain to Daniel things yet future. And what is he going to explain to Daniel? What is God going to deal with once and for all? Look at verse 24. The 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's Christ, friends. That's the Messiah, a suffering servant who would come and die for us and whom God raised from the dead and who's coming back. He's coming back one day to fulfill exactly what God said would happen to Daniel. Do you believe it? If so, may we pray. Pray that God's glory would shine in and through us as a church and as a, as a people.